morning, Southbridge. Happy Father's Day, dads. We are thankful that you are here with us today, and you play a significant role in our lives and, and our society as a whole, so we want to thank you for that, and uh, we're going to talk about that in our message today, but I want to give you a heads up that uh, next week we begin a brand new series. We're, con- we're ending our Relate series today. Next week we're starting a new series, and we're going to talk about things like joy and patience and self-control, peace, something that is very lacking in our society, and we're calling it supernatural. So many people don't know how to obtain those things. So if you know anybody that would be interested in that, feel free to welcome them, invite them to church next week. When you leave today, they'll have some invitation cards for you for the Supernatural series that's coming up, and you can use those to give out to folks in our community and friends and family members that you might want to invite to Southbridge. And for those of you who are here today for the first time, I just want to say a special hello and welcome to you. Uh, We've prayed for you and prepared for you and are excited that you're here. And one of the things we ask you to do, if you wouldn't mind, is in your worship program, there's a connection card. If you fill that out and turn it into the first-time guest kiosk, we're going to give you a gift, and we're also going to have some gifts that we give away to other people because you turned that, and to be able to bless their lives and try and connect them to Jesus Christ so that their lives can be transformed, changed, just like our lives have been. And so if you would fill that out, that'd be great. And also, everybody can use the connection card. If you're interested in being baptized later this summer, check on that you're interested in baptism. If you have a prayer request, there are a lot of prayer requests last week. Maybe you have an update from one of those. You can use the, the prayer request card that's on the connection card there, and anything that you'd like to communicate with us. And today, if you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, we definitely want to know that. So if you'd mark that on your card, or maybe you've trusted Christ and this is your first time at church since then, um, you can mark that on the card even right now. And we want to pray for you and uh, give you some resources to help you grow in that relationship. But what we're going to do today is we're going to get into our fatherhood message and wrap up our series, Relate. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump into God's Word. So let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you grateful that we can call you Father because of what your Son, Jesus Christ, has done for us. That we can be in your family, adopted, transformed, changed, brought into your family, redeemed, and made clean, and made new because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, we turn to you. I pray if there's any that don't know your Son, Jesus Christ, that today would be the day. I pray for us as dads, fathers, that you'd make us more like your Son, Jesus Christ, so that you'd point people to yourself through us and through our examples in our lives. And Father, I pray for those of us who have broken relationships with Dad, that those would be reconciled today. I pray that forgiveness would be granted. I pray that change would take place. I pray that you'd bring healing and that you would meet with each one of us today and show us how to better know you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, dads, I've got a tough question for you as we start. Are you a success? As a dad, are you a successful father? And the truth is that many of us don't know the answer to that question. And no one's ever given us a definition or a picture of what it looks like to be a successful father. And so we think through, am I a success? And maybe some of you are doing that right now. And maybe you think through your fatherhood, and you had probably some successful moments. You probably had some failures of moments. I know I think about myself being a father. I've got four kids right now. The oldest one is six. And I've already had some successes and some failures through the process. I shared with you one of my failures about this time last year. I had just gone on vacation, family vacation with my wife, and at the time our three kids, and my brother and sister-in-law were there, and their four kids, and we had just eaten dinner at a restaurant, which <laughs> that's asking for failure anyways, the seven kids at the restaurant. But after it was done, we were at this place called Barefoot Landing in North Myrtle Beach, and we came out, and there were these docks everywhere, and off the docks there were fish, and there were signs that said there were alligators in the water and whatnot, but whatever. And uh, there were fish that would come up, and uh, they were kind of carp size or whatever. You'd throw little pellets in there, spit in the water, whatever you did to get the fish to come up, and turtles would swim up to. And I remember my brother-in-law and I were standing out on one of these docks with our kids, and I had the one-year-old in the stroller. Pushed her up to the edge of the rail. She wasn't going to fall out. It wasn't that bad of a dad. But she's, she's there. She's watching the fish and stuff. My brother-in-law and I are talking, and then all of a sudden there's this traumatic experience for our families. 
Kids are screaming. Nieces and nephews are laying on the dock because my one-year-old took her lovey, which is the most important possession she has in this world, and she drops it in the water. And now the story is with our family that a turtle ate the lovey because it sank down, and that's what she says, so that's kind of what happens. The catchphrase for the weekend became, lovey all gone? And every once in a while she would say to me, and it would break my heart, lovey all gone, Dad? Like, you didn't do anything to stop this, Dad? You weren't watching me close enough, Dad? You're a failure as a father, Dad. Lovey all gone, Dad? Lovey all gone, Dad? And that was kind of the thing for that weekend. This past weekend, it's been a year now, we were in the same area. We've experienced some healing in our hearts. We decided to go back to the same area and kind of memorialize the lovey being gone in that moment. We were out on the same docks, and we're there as a family, and the nieces and nephews weren't with us, but now our four kids and my wife and I, we're kind of joking about what taken place a year before. We've got a replacement lovey now, so it's a lot easier to talk about, and, and we were just standing there talking about it, laughing, having a good time, and then all of a sudden, one of the kids screams out, Oh, no! It happened again. A leer, personal possession, is now in the water by the fish, by the turtles, and I look over, there's a shoe floating on top of the water, and one of my kids is now missing a shoe, and I think to myself, that's not happening again. I'm going to do something about it this time. I start looking over the edge of the dock, and I realize there's another smaller dock that's kind of floating in the water below there, and I tell my wife, I'm going down there. I'm getting the shoe. I said, I don't know if I'll be able to reach it or not. I go into the restaurant. I said, you have any, like, pincher things you guys pick up garbage with? He did. I grabbed it. I came out. Now there's pedestrians gathering around. They're watching this situation. My oldest daughter is mad because there are signs that say there's alligators in the water, so she thinks dad's going to get killed. She's convinced this is, this is a bad situation. My wife's a little unsure. The daughter who dropped her shoe in, she's excited because I'm like her hero. I climb over the rail. I get down on this dock. I can't see the shoe. This woman says from a restaurant, because people are watching us, right? She says, there's a turtle swimming away with the shoe underneath the dock. So we're getting shoe jacked by a turtle at this moment, and I take the clippers, and I grab a hold of the shoe, and I come up, and I got the shoe. I am the hero. Thank you, Jim. All right. Amen, everybody. Yeah. You're clapping because I'm a successful dad, right? <laughs> but I lost the lovey the year before. So am I a successful dad or am I a failure as a dad? And as I think about it, you know what? I've had a lot bigger failures than just losing a lovey. I have actually missed feedings before for our children, and my wife will come home, and all of a sudden the baby starts crying. It's like she doesn't cry for me, and she sees mom, and she starts crying. I've missed feedings. I've disciplined out of anger. I've lost my temper. I've gotten sharp in moments where there's sensitive moments. I've failed as a dad a lot of times. So am I a failure as a father? But I got the shoe, right? (laughs) Am I a success as a dad? And dads, what about you? Do you know? Are you a success as a father or a failure as a father? And maybe you define it by hopefully that you have more successes than you have failures and they kind of outweigh it. Or maybe hopefully one day your kids remember the successes and they forget the failures, right? But what if they remember the failures and they forget the successes? And how do you know? And it's so ambiguous. And it's how many of us treat our eternal destiny. Hopefully the good outweighs the bad and it's just, it's not the way to go. But what do you do? Because there aren't very many pictures of, of, of successful fathers. You even look through the scriptures as some of the heroes of our faith. David, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and they failed in the area of being a father. With passivity, David fails. It almost ruins his whole family. almost costs him his kingdom. You can look at Saul, the first king of Israel, and how he tries to manipulate his son. And he has problems as a father. And Isaac and Jacob and their favoritism. But then you get these glimpses of dads in the Bible, right? You get this guy that brings his son to Jesus because he's demon-possessed. And he, he begs for faith. He says, I believe for, help me with my unbelief. And so is he the hero? Is that the example? And the truth is that guy probably blew it a bunch of times too. And we look at society and they acknowledge that dad is important. 
And you see all the stats. And prisons are filled with men and women that didn't have fathers in the home. And teen suicide's high because father's not in the home. They don't have stats on bad dads, though. And dads that cause more problems than they do good. So how do you know? Just because you're there, does that make you a success? And we don't have a picture of that. There's only one throughout all of Scripture. It's our Heavenly Father. And so, dads, if you ask yourself if you're a success, it's am I a reflection of our Heavenly Father? Am I pointing my family and our society through my role as a father to our Heavenly Father? And today what we're going to do is we're going to look at a passage of Scripture and talk about how to relate with our Heavenly Father. And dads, specifically for you, I want you to ask yourself, as I lay my life down on top of the Scriptures, does it point people to my Heavenly Father? That's how you'll know if you're a success. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to be looking at verse 9. I invite you to turn there with me. The verses will be up on the screen. We give away some Bibles. And if you have your Bible with you, you can see the context of what's happening around this passage. This is actually the most popular sermon that's ever been preached. And in it, you've got topics covered like how to be blessed, salt and light, how to be, live on mission as a Christian. You've got the fulfillment of the law Jesus talks about. You've got sex, murder, divorce, making O's, being judgmental, punishments for sin, and prayer. Now, if I ever tried to preach a message that had all those topics in one, somebody should slap me afterwards. But Jesus can do it because he's Jesus. Because he knows how important it is to know the information about each one of these topics. And in all of those topics, one of the things he does is he teaches about prayer. And he teaches probably the most popular prayer that's ever been prayed. Sometimes we call it the Lord's Prayer, but it was really an example to the disciples on not what to pray, but how to pray. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at what does it teach us about the one we're praying to. Look at it with me in verse 9. This then, Jesus says, these are Jesus' words to his disciples, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven... Hallowed, it's an old English word that means separate, holy, be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And some of you maybe automatically pops in your head if you grew up in a religious environment, a church environment of some sort, a doxology that comes at the end of that, not actually in the text. But, uh, great words, great prayer, probably the most popular prayer that's ever been prayed. Lots of ways that we could outline this. We could talk about how there are six petitions in this prayer. The first three are all about God. The last three are all about our needs. We could talk about how to pray and approach this living God, the Father. But instead today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the one that's being prayed to, our Heavenly Father. The one that is an example of fatherhood. And we're going to see some characteristics of his life. And the first one that we see is that he is a father who knows what is best for us. He is a father who knows best. And dads, if you think about it for a moment, when you remember when well, your first child, if you've had more than one child, was born, at that moment, do you realize that all of society expected that you know things you didn't know the moment before? They expect that you know how to fix the car all of a sudden. You're going to have to teach people how to do this too. And you're going to have to fix things at your house? This is not fair, I'm going to tell you. They expect these things of you. They expect that you're all of a sudden going to be able to have to help pick a spouse someday. You're going to have to make decisions for your family about college and about education. And you're going to have to be able to ask tough questions and be sensitive in sensitive moments. And you're going to have to know what's best for your family all the time. It's not fair. I don't always know what's best. You don't always know what's best. But here's the deal. You're the leader. You're the leader in your home. You see it throughout Scripture. Fathers, you're going to teach your children. Ephesians chapter 5. Don't exasperate them, but teach them instruction of the Lord. 
In Deuteronomy, as you walk with your children, as you sit down, you're to teach them the instructions of the Lord. You're to teach them all these things that are best for them because you're the leader. And we talked about a couple weeks ago in the marriage sermon, husbands are the leaders of their wives. And, and I was sharing with you the summary of what I shared with you at the beginning of that message was that I believe that leadership boils down to two words. And the longer that I'm in a leadership role and the longer that I study other leaders in the scripture and in culture and in community, the more convinced I am that you can summarize leadership with two words. Those two words, responsibility and accountability. You have responsibility as a leader and you'll be held accountable for that responsibility as a leader. And dads, you have responsibility and accountability for leading your family. If you don't believe it, look throughout the scripture. You see the great dads, they took that responsibility seriously. You see Job in Job chapter 1 offering sacrifices for his family because he knows he has spiritual responsibility for these are grown children. He's offering sacrifices for his grown children. You see what Joshua says in Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15. You can read it later on your own. He says, as for me in my house, not for me. And I hope that the kids see me doing it and they've got to make their own decisions and they'll figure it all out. No, as for me, and he takes responsibility, and my house, we will follow the Lord. And you say, well, yeah, that's great for him, but that's not, it's not really how it works now and there's all this stuff that we've learned and the individuals and it's a personal relationship and so they've got to do it. And, but God's going to hold you accountable. And you see people who blew it throughout the scriptures. Look at Achan in Joshua chapter 7. He's the one who sinned, but who pays? His whole family. What does God say to Moses on Mount Sinai when he's giving the Ten Commandments? Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, read it on your own. He's talking to them about not having any other gods before them. Don't have anything else central in your life. Don't have work or ministry or anything that you might worship, alcohol, substances, another person. Nothing else is above God in your life. And he says what the punishment will be if you do that is that we will punish not only the parents, but the children's children, the whole family. Not just the leader, there'll be accountability for the whole family because, Dad, you're responsible for and accountable for the whole family. And one of your biggest responsibilities is to point them in the way of what's best. But the reality is, you don't always know. And if you've always known up until this moment, there will come a time you don't. So what do you do? You point them to the one who does. That's what Jesus does in this passage when he points us to the Father. In verse 9, at the very beginning, he says, This then is how you should pray. And look at who you're praying to. Our Father. That's unique. Jesus and the Father have a unique father-son relationship. And it's common for many of us because this prayer is so popular and because we hear so many prayers where people start with Father. But do you realize that when Jesus teaches this to his disciples, to his followers, this is revolutionary. People didn't call God Father. He was holy and majestic and sovereign and other and righteous, but not Father. That's such an intimate term. If you look at the Old Testament, you see that he's called Father about 15 times. And usually when they call him Father, they're talking about he's the Father of the whole nation. But to an individual, this is new. Jesus begins this way of addressing the Father. He's the one who says it here, and it's said throughout the New Testament about 250 times. So it's only 15 times in the Old Testament, about 250 times in the New Testament. The Old Testament's a big book, if you haven't noticed. The New Testament's a little bit shorter. Proportionately, that's a lot different. And if you look at just the prayers of Jesus, he prays to God the Father in every prayer that he prays in the New Testament except one. And every prayer that he prays minus one. Do you have any idea which prayer it is that he doesn't call God Father? It's when he's on the cross 
and he's taking on the sins of the world that will separate him from the Father, and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every other time he calls God Father, it's a term of endearment, a term of intimacy. But some of us struggle with it. Some of you struggle with the idea of God being Father because your earthly father stunk. And maybe it was just some weaknesses that he had. Maybe he was kind of passive. And so you view God as kind of off in the distance. And he created everything and put it all in motion. And yeah, he cares about what's happening, but he's kind of just sitting in his big lazy boy up in heaven, you know, not really involved in what's happening in our lives. Uh, or, or some of you, dad was absent, and so you feel like he's not even there. God, he's kind of out there, and you throw a prayer up and hope it sticks. And some of you, dad was abusive or domineering or controlling. And you almost see God, maybe you don't consciously say this, but almost like he wants to hurt you, like he doesn't want what's best for you. And there's a, an unhealthy fear of God. There is a healthy fear of God because of who he is. There can be an unhealthy fear of God, and some people struggle with that. Let me remind all of you of something. Our Heavenly Father is not a reflection of our earthly fathers. Our earthly fathers are supposed to be a reflection of our Heavenly Father. And that is where many of us fail. When we do, we point them to the one who knows what's best. It's not hard to believe that he knows what's best. He knows everything, right? He knows the end before the beginning. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the only one who knows when his son will return. He knows every detail about your life. Read Psalm 139. It's the first passage of Scripture I ever looked at as a believer. And in that passage of Scripture, do you know that it says that he knows what you think before you think it? <laughs> wow. Whoa, look, hey, wait, you can't get ahead. He, he knows it before you think it. He knows your words before you say them. He knows before you stand up that you're about to stand up. He knows before you sit down that you're about to sit down. He goes ahead of you. He's behind you. He knows everything about you. In fact, the New Testament tells us he knows the very hairs on your head. And this passage, right before Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer, he says he knows our needs. So this is how we're supposed to pray, because he already knows our needs. Sometimes we go to God like we're giving him an update, right? Like, hey, did you realize, you know, whatever happened? He already knows, but he still wants us to talk to him. In verse 8, he says, do not be like them. And he's talking about the religious leaders. And because of their long prayers and saying stuff over and over again, it's like they're going to, you know, get God to submit to listening to them. Now, God wants to listen to you. He cares about you. He loves you. And he knows what's best for you. And he says here, your father knows what you need before you ask him. He knows all of your needs. And you know what that means? He knows how to best relate with each one of you. He knows how to best reach me. He, he knows how to best reach you in every moment and in every circumstance. Jesus tells a great story about a father that does reflect his heavenly father in Luke chapter 15. And I think it's a great illustration of the fact that he, he loves differently with different kids. He's got two sons, and they couldn't be more different than each other. There's one son, oftentimes we call him the prodigal son. He's a rebellious son. And he goes to his father. He's as disrespectful as you could imagine being. He wishes his father were dead. And he takes his inheritance, runs off, spends the money on prostitutes, spends the money on wild living, does what he wants to do because it's what seems right to him. And many of us have lived our lives that way. And then there's another son. He's self-righteous. He's got entitlement issues like many self-righteous people do. And he thinks because of the things he hasn't done, that his father owes him something. And what you see in the passage is a picture of a father who knows the needs of both of his sons, loves each one of them uniquely in their situation. What happens is the rebellious son, as he allows him to go and, and make these mistakes, and, and he ends up getting to the place where he realizes, I'm doing everything I want to do, and I'm still empty inside. And I've been there. Some of you have been there. You know what that's like. He's the son that I relate with the most. 
he ends up realizing it would be better for him to be a servant in his father's house than it would be to be doing the stuff that he's doing right now. And so he goes back home, and while he's still at a distance, his father sees him, and he runs to him. Think about it. He could have stayed at home, realizing his son is there. He could have made preparations for his son to return. He could have just waited so that he welcomed him with a warm welcome back into the house. But he knows that son, and he knows what that son needs, so he runs to him. No respectable man would do that in that culture. He pulls up his robe. He shows his legs. He runs to this boy, and then he wraps his arms around him. And he gives him lavish gifts. He gives him a robe. He gives him a ring. He puts sandals on his feet. He throws a party for him. He sacrifices the best animal that they have. He's excited because his son was lost. Now he's found. And then the self-righteous son sees it. He comes up. The father loves him too in a different way because he needs to be loved in a different way. He knows his needs. He comes up and says, what are you doing? I've been here this whole time. You didn't never sacrifice the animal for me. You didn't give me any of this stuff. And the father says to him, You've always been with me, and everything I have is yours. And let me paraphrase, you didn't ask. He needed the tough love, the more stern love. Each one, he knows their individual needs, and your father knows your needs. What are your needs? What are some of your daily needs? We talk about praying about that in this passage. Give us this day our daily bread, today's bread, the physical provisions, and some of you, that's your need. It's a job, or it's a meal, or it's shelter, it's clothes. and Those are very temporary things. So those are our, our daily needs, our smallest needs. But think about the needs we have that impact eternity. Your greatest need, each one of us, mine too, is our sin problem. And think about what God did to solve that. He spared no expense to adopt us into his family. See, some people think that they can call God Father just because they're created by God. That's not true. The only way that you can call God Father is that if you've been adopted into his family. He says in John chapter 1 and verse 12, that to all who have believed in his name have received him. He gives the right to be called children of God. Only those who've received Jesus Christ as Savior can truly call God Father. Anybody can say this prayer out loud, but to truly be able to call him Father, you have to be his child. And the way you become his child is you accept the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, and think about what he did so that you could know his son, Jesus Christ. He adopted you into his family. You were without hope and without God, separated from God because of your sin. It separates you from God. He's holy, righteous, and different than us. He had to rectify that and bring you into his family by adoption. Some of you have adopted before. Some of you know how costly that is. One of our pastors, our shepherding pastor that preached last week, he's adopting a little boy right now from Russia. He and his family are. Do you know what the cost is? $45,000. That's a lot of money. They've got to go to Russia three times and I'll pay all the paperwork and all that stuff. Now, could you imagine for a moment that God compelled your heart to adopt and you found a child that you loved? Well, maybe a baby, maybe a little boy, maybe 16 years old, different, different situations for each one of us. But say you found a child that you loved. You wanted to bring them into your home. And you wanted to teach them things that no one else was going to teach them. And you wanted to provide protection. You wanted to provide meals. And you wanted to be able to take care of it and nurture it and give a great home to. And you fall in love with this child. And then you find out the cost is you have to give one of your biological children in order to adopt this child. That's what happened with our Heavenly Father. He only had one biological son. His only begotten, his only biological son is what he gave to meet our greatest need. Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 8 and verse 32, that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, 
along with him, Jesus, graciously give us all things, everything that we need. See, your father, he knows your needs and he knows how to meet your needs. He knows what is best for you. And earthly fathers, do you know what your family needs? They need you to lead them. They need you to lead them through difficult circumstances. They need to see your faith. They need to see that you stand on the rock of Jesus Christ. They need you to lead them on a daily basis. They need to see you opening God's word in your home. Not just bringing them to church and hoping they see you sing a song and hoping something rubs off and maybe they get it in Bridge Kids or with the youth group. They need to see you and how your experiences, your relationship with God changes how you live and how God has changed you. They need to see you. That's what they need from you. I was reading in preparation for this message an old Baptist pastor, Charles Spurgeon, He says some things to parents about being able to mentor their kids and invest in their kids. And he says, you need to do more than just teach them the facts of the Bible. More than just, you know, stories of David and the slingshot and all that kind of stuff. You need to show them how it impacts your life. What are your experiences with God? And so I was studying for this message on Thursday and was getting all excited about it. I was having dinner with the family on Thursday night before I was going to start typing everything. And I had this plan. I'm going to tell my kids how I came to know Jesus. They already know the story about Jesus going to the cross. They already know that I'm a Christian. I want to show them how this all fits together. And so I tell them at the meal, tomorrow night, so build a little suspense, right? Tomorrow night for bedtime, I'm going to tell you how daddy came to know Jesus Christ as his savior. And they're all excited. And they say, tell us some now. <laughs> and so now I want to give them like a movie trailer, right? Like a little teaser to get them to, to want to gather around and listen to the story. So I tell them something to blow their little minds. I said, when daddy was a little boy, he didn't go to church. (laughs) Which to them, like, dad goes to church every day now. Like, you didn't go to church? And so one of my daughters says, oh, no, that is so sad. And I feel like we're connecting at that moment, right? Like, she's empathetic for I didn't know God when I was a little kid. In our family, we didn't didn't do that. And then she says, oh, no, that is so sad. You didn't get any donuts. (laughs) All right, so I got a ways to go, dads. Here's the point. The point is it's not always going to go the way you plan, Dad. You open the word with your family, there's going to be times when it's awkward. You go to pray and they're going to think, but you just lost your temper. And they're going to think you're a hypocrite. You show them that, that's, that you need to go to the one who does know what's best when you don't. In your failures, you need to point them to your Father. In your moments of great strength, you need to show them where that strength comes from. They need to see you in your relationship with God. And make it real. <laughs> it doesn't just have to be some story. And yeah, and I would have been just like David and killing the giant. No, no, no. Tell them what it's like in the tough decisions you make at work. Tell them what it's like as you make decisions for the family. Make them a part of that. And show them that the one that's actually guiding the family is the one that actually does know who's best, what's best. And it's your heavenly father. He knows what's best. Not only does he know what's best, this point is revolutionary. He wants what's best for you. Not only does he know what's best for you, But our Father is a Father who wants what's best for you. And let me tell you why this is revolutionary. Because you can write it down in your notes, put it in your iPad, memorize it, all that stuff, and it will change nothing. But if you actually believed this, it would change everything. It's not hard to convince you that God, He created everything, He's from the end, the beginning, the Alpha, the Omega, all that stuff, that He knows what's best, but that He actually wants what's best for us? If that's true, why would we ever disobey? If that's true, why would we ever go anywhere else for counsel? If that's actually true, it would transform our lives, our marriages, our communities, our city, our world, if we would actually live according to the fact that God knows what's best and he wants what's best for us. And Jesus says to pray in this passage when he's talking about how to pray. Pray to our Father who's in heaven, who knows your needs, 
And then pray this, verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done. You know what will is? It's his wants. It's his desires. Your, why would we want his will to be done instead of our own? Because he actually wants what's best for us. And if there's anybody that could ever teach us this, think about who's, who's teaching us this prayer. It's Jesus. And he actually submitted and believing this to the Father, acknowledging that the Father knew that the cross was what was best for him. Not my will, but your will. Not my desires, but your wants, Father. Because I believe that you actually want what's best for me, Jesus, and for all of the world. And it was best for Jesus to go to the cross. Think about what it would mean if he didn't. He wouldn't be our Father. We'd be eternally separated from God. We'd be without hope on our way to hell, regardless of how good or how bad we are. Without Jesus Christ, we're hellbound. But Jesus goes to the cross, and not only was that best for us, but then he's given the name that's above every name, that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, because he became obedient to death, not only death, but death on the cross, that he gave his life as a ransom for us, that he paid our debt that we couldn't pay as our substitutionary sacrifice. That was best for him as he will receive glory throughout all of eternity for that. And it was best for us because now we can have a relationship with our father. He's a father who knows what's best. But oftentimes we don't think that's true. We don't think he really does know what's best or else why would we ever choose something else? We think we know better. We think, and we don't say it out loud, that what we want for our lives is actually better than what God wants for our lives. What do we ultimately want for our lives? We want joy. We want happiness. We want peace. We want to be satisfied. We want the abundant life. It's all the stuff he came to give us, but we believe we know a better way to get there. And what you can do is ask person after person in our church. Ask me my story. Ask everybody else their stories. Go to Celebrate Recovery on Thursday night. Listen to some of their stories. And they will all have some ring of this. I thought I knew it was best. Maybe don't say that phrase. But I was leading my life, or job was driving the decisions, I was in this relationship, that person made all the decisions, whatever it was that was on the throne of your life was deciding. Usually it's us. And we did this, contrary to what God told us to do, and it went, fill in the blank, poorly, will essentially be what ends up happening. And you can go through scripture and you can do the same thing. Adam and Eve, they're in, they're in the garden, they've got a perfect situation with a perfect father. It's not his fault. They've got a perfect father. And they decide that they think they actually know better than he does. Or what they want seems better than what he wants for them. Because he told them, don't eat of this tree. But she saw the tree and it looked like it was good for food. And so she decided she wanted to. It goes poorly. Ladies, if you experience pain in childbirth, you can thank Eve for that. Men, you've got a frustrating day at work. You can thank Adam for that. It's because they thought they knew better than God. If you continue to go through the scripture, you can see guys like Abraham, hero of the faith. God makes him a promise. He's going to help God out rather than trusting that God knows the best way for this to happen. It goes poorly. He has a son named Ishmael. There's a battle and conflict between the Israelites, the Ishmaelites for years and years to come. It caused a problem for nations of people. It doesn't go well. Read about Sodom and Gomorrah. They want something that God doesn't want for them. But, but they want this, and so if they're made this way, then it must be, and blame it on God, really? It doesn't go well. And we repeat these mistakes. We do the same things over and over again. And you can keep going through the scripture and keep finding everybody that's disobedient. It's that they think that they know better than God or what they want is better than what God wants. It doesn't go well. And why is that? Why do we do this? It's because for some reason, in some way, we don't trust God. We won't submit to him. Maybe it's our pride. Maybe it's that we really do think that we're smarter than him. We won't say it. We think it. And our behavior plays it out. Maybe it's that we project upon God things that were true about our earthly father 
And because he was unreliable, because he wasn't trustworthy, because he was a certain way, then we project that upon God. Remember, God is not a reflection of our earthly father. Our earthly father is supposed to be a reflection of God. God is different. And you know what? God is trustworthy. And that's why Jesus is able to say, pray your kingdom come. In order for his kingdom to come, you know what has to happen? He fulfills all of his promises. He's trustworthy. Anybody who cries out for God's kingdom to come is acknowledging that God can be trusted for every promise. You know what? The scripture says that's true. It says that there are things that are impossible for God to do. One of them is lie. It's an interesting study. You can read it on your own. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. It is impossible for God to lie. You can go through and also see in the scripture that says that every promise that God's ever made has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All the promises, they're all answered yes in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And you start thinking about what that means. He knows every need you have. He knows how to relate with you. He knows about what your father was like. And so what that means for your relationship with him and how to reach you. He knows what your experiences have been like. He knows the decisions you've made. He knows what your personality is. He knows what your gifts are. And then he makes hundreds and hundreds of promises that all apply to you. Things like Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. Dads, do you feel the weight of your responsibility? Come to me. I'll give you rest. And we've got a mission. We've got a purpose as a body of followers of Jesus Christ. And he tells us what it is in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. He finishes it with a promise. And verse 20 says, and I'll be with you always to the end of the age. What a great promise that is from a father. I'll always be with you. You've got pressures, you've got anxieties. He says, you can throw that stuff, you can hurl that stuff upon me. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 7, cast your cares, whatever they are, you cast your cares upon me because I care for you. And you go through the scriptures and he keeps promising things like this. In Philippians chapter 4, you come to him, you come to me, he promises you that he will give you peace that surpasses understanding. He promises it if you'll take your anxieties and your cares to him. He promises in James, in James chapter 4 and verse 7, he promises if you submit to him, and the devil will flee from you. He promises that. You struggle with temptation, you struggle with some sin, he gives you a promise about it. You draw near to him, he'll draw near to you in the very next verse. You're dry spiritually, you draw near to him. He promises to draw near to you. All of the answer to all the promises are yes in Christ Jesus. He promises to make everything new in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 5. And behold, I'm making everything new. That's you, that's your mind, that's your life, that's all circumstances, that's sin, that's all that stuff is gone. And look at what he says at the end of that verse. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Do you know why? Because he says them. And it's impossible for him to lie. So with the hundreds and hundreds of promises, let me give you one. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And I'll read it slowly. And we know that in all things, all things, every circumstance, the hard circumstances, the victorious, exciting circumstances, in all things, God works. He's at work. He's actively involved. For the good, not just his own good, not just for his glory, for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his name, the ones who've received Jesus Christ as Savior. He works... For good, for those who love him, who've been called according to his will, plan, purposes. Let me paraphrase this promise for you. He wants what is best for you. And does he know what's best for you? He wants what is best for you. And what is best for you, one of the things, one of the central things is his forgiveness. We have a father who forgives 
Not only do we have a father who knows best and a father who wants what's best, but don't miss this last point. He is a father who forgives. And that's why Jesus prays at the end of this prayer, forgive us our debts, which is an interesting statement. Uh, There's a lot of credit card debt in this country. What is he saying here? (laughs) Is he saying, run to South Point, buy yourself a new wardrobe, and Father, forgive me of my debts. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, forgive our sins. You can read the parallel passage in Luke. In Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, Luke says that forgive sins. This is a, a Jewish way of speaking about sin. And Matthew is primarily written to a Jewish audience. And so he says here, forgive us our debts. But notice this next part. As we also have forgiven our debtors. There's an implied, if we've been forgiven, that we'll forgive. And this debt that we have is an insurmountable amount of debt. It could never be paid by us. It doesn't matter how many sins you've done. If you've lied one time, you can never pay it back. And here's why. Not because of the amount of sin you have, because of the God that you've sinned against. He's infinite and eternal. He is holy and righteous and just. Those are all true. Just because he's forgiving doesn't mean he just forgets about all this stuff. Because you have one lie, one judgmental thought, one lustful thought, one proud thought, you could never make it to heaven. And that's why he sends his son, Jesus Christ, for the wages of sin, what we earn, our debt, is death. But because Jesus Christ came to give his life as a ransom for many, he paid that debt for us. The gift of God is eternal life. So when we receive this forgiveness, and the way that it's seen that we've received this forgiveness is we forgive others. Jesus tells a story about it in Matthew chapter 18. It's a great story. You can read it on your own. Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21. Peter comes to him and asks him about forgiveness. And he tells this story that talks about debt. He says there was the servant, and he had this debt to the king. And you can figure out who the players are in a couple moments. But what happens is this servant owes the king 10,000 talents. That doesn't mean anything to us. A talent was the largest form of currency in circulation at that time. 10,000 of them would be an unfathomable amount of money. Just crazy. You could never even think about how much money that was. It'd be like saying an individual owes the national debt. You know, you owe $14 trillion. And he gets called before the king, and the king says, it's time to pay up the debt. And he says, I just need some more time. (laughs) How disillusioned are we about our own debt? He says, I just need some more time. And he says, here's what we're going to do. And this is interesting, especially for us to think about accountability. The king says, we're going to sell you, but not just you, we're going to sell your kids and your wife too into slavery to pay some of the debt. And so what the man does is he falls down and he starts begging. Could you imagine how intensely you would beg at this point? He begs, just give me more time. And the king doesn't give him more time. Instead, the king gives him grace. And he says, you're forgiven. And you go free. And the guy goes free. And then he sees somebody who owes him 100 denarii which is not five bucks. It's a significant amount of money. It'd be about three months' wages, so it's thousands of dollars. But in comparison to 14 trillion, a few thousand is not a lot of money. And so you would think that because of what he's been forgiven, he would then forgive. But what happens in the story is Jesus says he grabs the guy by the throat and he says, pay up. And the guy begs him. Sound familiar? He begs him. To give him more time. Give him an opportunity. And he doesn't. He throws the man in jail. It's an illustration of what oftentimes we do. We sin against a holy and righteous God, and we make it seem like it's not that big of a deal. Because forgiveness is offered to us. It's offered to us freely, right? But then somebody sins against us, and whatever they do to us. They lie to us. They betray us. They cheat us. They hurt us in some way. 
And we magnify that. Like it's, you would never under, I would, could never understand what's been done to you. And maybe I couldn't. But God can. And then you look at what he says about forgiveness. A lot of times we don't read the verses after the Lord's Prayer. Let me read them to you. First, the positive, verse 14. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Then the negative, same thing, just stated negatively, verse 15. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. We don't talk about that because it's scary. Do you know what happens in Matthew chapter 18? The king finds out. He finds out that the man did this, and he calls the guy back in. And he says to him, you're now going to be tortured. You're going to repay this sin. You're going to be tortured until you pay it back. Do you know how long it takes you to pay something back when you're being tortured? You'll never do it. You're not earning any money. He's going to be tortured forever. We've sinned against an eternal God. And the payment, we could go and we could be tortured forever and never pay it back. Or we can accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who's paid it all for us. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. One lie is enough to condemn us to hell. One lustful thought, one proud thought, one, one time of theft, it's enough to send us to hell. But there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he is faithful, he is just, he's done the work to pay our debt so that we can receive forgiveness. And the way that that's seen is that we forgive. And so, what this passage is teaching is not In order for you to be forgiven enough, you've got to go forgive enough. You don't earn your forgiveness that way. What Jesus is saying is when you've received the forgiveness of a trillions and trillions, $14 trillion debt, and somebody sins against you, the way that you know whether you've really received that forgiveness, whether you've actually grasped the weight of your sin, is that you forgive them. And for some of us, the application of this message today is that we need to receive forgiveness from God. Some of you may think that you're forgiven by God, but you won't forgive other people. And I don't know what your spiritual status is, so I'm not going to claim to know. But you at least need to ask yourself the question, have I really received this forgiveness? Do I grasp what's been done for me? And what you may need to do is experience the weight of your sin today. For some of you fathers, you need to ask for forgiveness from a heavenly father for the way that you've blown it. Your real commandment is this, be perfect, as your heavenly father is perfect. (laughs) We've all blown it. But we have a Father who not only knows what's best and wants what's best, He knows the best thing for us is that we come to Him for forgiveness and that He's seen even in our failures. And so dads, we need to come before the throne of God and ask Him to forgive us. And some of you, you might need to forgive dad. And he may have been an awful dad. But because of the forgiveness that you've received, you're actually reflecting your heavenly Father to your Father when you do that. For some of you, you may need to forgive your kids. I don't know what the application will be for you, but I'll tell you, it'll be a tangible application. It's not just something you say in your mind. It might mean an email. It might mean a phone call. It might mean a letter that you write. It might mean a a visit for coffee. A dad might be dead. You might need to write a letter anyways. But I'm going to ask God to speak to your hearts because he knows your needs. Dads, I just ask you, are you successful? We've all failed at moments. Are you even successful in your failure because you go to your father in those moments of failure? Do you allow others to see that? Maybe you need to ask your kids for forgiveness. And what we're going to do right now is we're just going to bow before our Heavenly Father. I'm going to give you a few moments in prayer. Some of you may need to experience forgiveness for the first time. Trust Jesus Christ to be your Savior. Call upon the name of Jesus. Acknowledge your sin and what it's done that separated you from God. And you need a relationship with Jesus. And you can do that right now. If you do that right now, I'd ask you to mark it on your connection card. Let's all go before our Heavenly Father and pray. Father.
we come into your presence, grateful for your forgiveness, grateful that you are our Father, that while you're holy and righteous and majestic, that you have a throne of grace. And because of your grace, you allow us to come before you as Father. And we come to you today, Father. And we ask for forgiveness. I pray for those who need to begin a relationship with your son, Jesus Christ, that right now in their seats they would even acknowledge their sin to you, that you'd let them feel the weight of their sin, the separation from you, and acknowledge that Jesus Christ has paid that debt. And they would cast that sin upon the cross. And they would receive your son, Jesus Christ, to be their Savior. And if you do that right now, I just ask that you'd pray to God in your hearts. Speak to him about that. Speak to him about your sins. Speak to him about what Jesus has done. Ask Jesus to be your Savior. And if you would, mark that on your connection card. That'd be wonderful. We'll have people down here, part of a response team after the service is over with, that would love to talk with you, love to give you a Bible, love to pray with you if you want to pray, and be able to help you in that journey. And Father, I pray for those that know your son Jesus Christ as Savior, but maybe are hindered in their relationship because of sin, that you'd give forgiveness, that you'd grant forgiveness. We know that you always do, but we have to call on you for it. We have to ask for it. Father, we trust that you do know what's best. I pray that we'd be more surrendered to you as a result of seeing your word, hearing your word today. And I pray specifically for fathers. I pray that dads would reflect on whether they're a reflection of you. I'll just give you a moment of prayer between you and God, and I'll wrap us up in a minute. And our Father, we acknowledge that you are holy and separate, that you're different from us, but choose to relate with us. We thank you for that. We pray that your kingdom would come. We pray that your son Jesus would return. We pray that we'd be able to be in your glory, singing holy, holy, holy with all the angels. We pray, Father God, that you would provide for each basic need that's here represented, jobs, health, all those things. Father, you know the hairs on our head. You know every detail. We pray that you would provide. We pray that we would know that you do desire what's best for us, that your will would be done in our lives, that you would reach this world for your son Jesus Christ through our lives. And Father, will you forgive us of our sins? Will you lead us and guide us into the way everlasting? Help us to forgive others. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.